Hi, guys. Welcome to everyone. It is good to be with you. If you're joining us online, I always want to say hello, give you a shout out. It's good to have you with us. Um, I just want to say I love worshiping God in song with you guys. What a blessing it is to just have the worship team lead us, not have me lead us, (laughs) and just to be able to go, wow, God actually wants to connect with us in a way that is unique because, um, you know, I'm a shower worship singer and a car worship singer and all that kind of stuff. I think some of you might be too, but when we come together, there's something about the family of God lifting our voice together to praise God that is just unbelievably wonderful. So thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, last week, uh, I've, I've been just dealing with thank you calls all week from parents who said, hey, thanks for teaching us that bedtime story for our kids. <laughs> so we've been doing this, you know, started the message with a great bedtime story, and uh, apparently it's really been a blessing to the kids at home this week, and they keep saying, tell us again, mommy, about where the guy gets hit by the bus, tell us again, you know. <laughs> Um, So since that was such a big hit, I thought I would begin this week with another wonderful story. And like every great story, it begins with the words, once upon a time. There were two identical twin brothers. You could not tell them apart. I mean, their parents could not tell them apart by the way they looked. They looked exactly the same. And as they aged, nothing changed. They continued to look just the same, just the same. But everything else about them was different. On the outside, they were just the same, but on the inside, they were completely different in every way. If one of them said, boy, it's hot in here, the other one said, man, it's cold in here. If one of them loved sports, the other one loved music. If one of them, you know, loved the Rolling Stones, the other one loved opera. And and just, they were just different in every possible way. And one of them was an eternal optimist, and the other one was an eternal pessimist. And it just seemed like the optimist always saw the good in things, and the pessimist always saw the negative in things, to the point where it was driving the parents crazy. And by the time they were seven years old and they were about to have their seventh birthday, the dad decided, I'm going to test this and see how far it goes. So they took the boys out to dinner for their birthday. And when they came home from dinner, they said, boys, your, your birthday gifts are in your bedrooms. Go open them up. And the boys went running up the stairs. And they went to their separate bedrooms. And in the bedroom of the pessimist, there was just like 10 gifts. And he just starts tearing through and ripping off the paper and opening them up. This is a new PlayStation. This is a new iPad. This is a remote control airplane. Just on and on and on. He just kept getting all this stuff. And the parents didn't hear anything. So after a while, they went upstairs. And they walked into his room and they saw him sitting there with all of these toys and all these boxes and wrappers around him. And they said, well, what do you think? And he goes, how are we going to get batteries for all this stuff? <laughs> and you know, I'll probably just crash this plane anyways. And, and then my friends are going to be jealous because they don't have this stuff. And the dad just looked at the mom, shook his head. They said, let's go check on the other one. And they went to the other one's room. And in that room, instead of a room full of gifts, there was a giant pile of manure in the middle of his room that they had left for him. And they walked in, and the kid is jumping and dancing around the pile of manure, laughing and smiling. And they're like, what is up with you? And, and he goes, 
with this much manure, there's got to be a pony somewhere. (laughs) Isn't it funny how there are some of us for whom the glass is half empty no matter what? And for some of us, it's just easier to see the upside. Some, there are some people who are just seem to always be positive. Other people always seem to be negative. Some people always seem to be hopeful. Other people always seem to be bummed out for whatever reason. Some people just seem like they're controlled by doubt and fear and worry, anxiety. And other people seem to just be at peace in all circumstances. Which of those lives would you rather have? Right? Yeah. And, and last week we talked about joy. We're in Philippians chapter four. If you got your Bibles, you're gonna wanna get there. Philippians chapter four. Last week we talked about joy in Philippians four and we talked about how joy is a transcendent experience for those who are in Christ that your circumstances don't get to snuff out your joy. Your circumstances can't bring you joy, but neither can they take away your joy. And so we talked a lot about this command that we get at the beginning of Philippians four to rejoice in all circumstances. Which circumstances? Okay, good, you're still with me. You didn't sound real happy about it when you said it, but okay. (laughs) Well, this week, Paul is gonna push the envelope a little more for us in Philippians 4, um, and he's he's gonna show us a pathway to a life of peace. We talked last week about how can we live a life of joy. This week, we're gonna talk about is it really reasonable to think that a life of peace is available to us? And so again, we're gonna be in Philippians chapter four. If you're having trouble finding it, it's in your New Testament. Uh, You find the big books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. Those are the big ones at the beginning. And then he gets to the letters, and uh, you get Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. So go to Philippians chapter four. And I want you to join me. We're going to pick it up in verse 4 of Philippians chapter 4, which was last week's message. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we talked about joy last week, those first couple of verses. And when we talked about joy, I really struggled because I wanted to find a simple, pithy, um, memorable little way to define joy. And I failed miserably. Trying to define joy, so what I did was I put it on the grace group leaders and I wrote a grace group question to say, talk in your grace groups about what does joy mean compared to what happiness means, and I'm sure you all had brilliant ideas in your grace group, but the problem I keep running into every time I try to define joy is um, I, I find myself just talking about peace. Like, joy is that inner peace that you feel regardless of your circumstances, knowing that because you're in Christ, all things are well. I don't know how to talk about joy biblically without talking about peace. And then it struck me this week as I was preparing this week's message that really last week's message and this week's message are not two separate messages, they're two parts of one message. And since I was pretty sure I couldn't get you to sit still for the whole thing in one week, we're ending up doing it this way, but... Um, 
what I found is it's very, very difficult to talk about joy without talking about peace. They're not just like cousins, joy and peace. They're like conjoined twins. You always find them together. One goes with the other. And so here in Philippians, Paul talks about them together in the passage that we just read. And he also does that in several of his letters. And one that I wanna point you to, I just keep your finger there in Philippians, but if you turn back to the left, two books, you'll get to Galatians. And I want you to go to Galatians chapter six with me, or excuse me, Galatians uh, chapter five. I think I did this last week too, put the wrong verse in the notes. It's Galatians 5.22. I want you to go to Galatians 5.22. And uh, follow along as we look at this familiar passage. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit. Now, probably if you've been around church for any period of time, if you've ever been in a children's Sunday school or a VBS or anything like that, it's hard to avoid teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. It pops up again and again and again. So a lot of us have learned, memorized songs to help us remember these uh, words. And a lot of us, for us, these words are very familiar. But I want to point something out to you. When we're looking at this list of words that describes the fruit of the Spirit, it does not describe the fruits of the Spirit. It describes the fruit, singular. And it gives us a long list of words, which we tend to think of as completely separate things. But God presents them to us and says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. So as you think of the fruit of the Spirit, don't think of a fruit bowl that has like an apple and some grapes and an orange and a um, banana. Don't think that way. Think instead of a punch bowl. That, that you take these fruits and you squeeze their juice into the punch bowl and you stir it all together and you have this sort of mixture that is one very unique flavor unto itself and it includes all of these things. That's the idea of the fruit of the Spirit. So let's think of it this way. Today's message on peace, not really separate from last week's message on joy, they come together. And we're going to actually be talking about that more as we head toward the Christmas season because these are Christmas Advent themes. So God wants us to live with joy. He wants us to live with peace. That much seems obvious. How the heck do we do that? That's the question. Let's go back to Philippians again and look with me again at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. All right, before we can make much progress here, we need to talk about the elephant in the room. Ours is arguably the most anxiety-filled culture in the history of the world. I doubt you would ever be able to find any evidence of a culture that deals with more stress, more anxiety, more rush, more pressure, all of those kind of things that add up to this like stress-filled life. You're not gonna find it anywhere more than you find it here. So the truth of the matter is we read verses like this and I'm gonna say what I said last week. It is very easy to read verses like this that say things that seem impossible for us to do and go, well, it's kind of hyperbole. He's just making a point. No, he's not just making a point. He's actually issuing a command. He's telling us this is how you must live. 
So this is not hyperbole. Don't put it on the shelf and go, oh, it's just an ideal, it's just a theory, it's just something that all of us could look to as an example but never really get to. He's actually talking about living in an anxiety-filled culture with peace. Some of you are already starting to feel uncomfortable just because I brought up the issue of anxiety. Already your pulse is quickening, you're starting to wipe sweat from your brow. Um, So let me be clear about a couple things. One, I am not here to judge you if you're dealing with anxiety. That is not the point of this message. I am not here to heap guilt upon you if you're on anxiety medication, if you are seeing a counselor because of anxiety-related issues, if you are struggling with anxiety-related things, I am not making this about guilt, and hopefully by the time we're done, you'll see that. So I just wanna ask you, I just wanna invite you, if anxiety is a challenge that you face in your life, take a deep breath and relax and ask God to open your heart because I think there's gonna be some things in God's word that are actually gonna help deliver us from a life controlled by this. So number one, don't hear judgment, don't hear guilt in this. Number two, there is a difference between what Paul is calling anxiety when he says be anxious for nothing. There's a difference between what Paul is calling anxiety and what we think of as clinical anxiety today. When we think of clinical anxiety, anxiety attacks, things of that nature, um, we're talking about something that is happening physiologically within your body. I'm not a doctor. I don't claim to understand exactly how it works, but I know the symptoms include a racing heart increased pulse. I know the symptoms include uh, shallow breathing, difficulty breathing sometimes, um, uh, profuse sweating that comes upon you, and, and you don't know what's going on or why, but you can't seem to dial it down. And um, uh, the inability to focus your mind just kind of races. And, And many of us, as you're hearing this, are going, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I deal with from time to time. Or maybe that's exactly what I deal with almost all the time. Or, you know, that's what my son deals with or my friend. It's so common that people are dealing with that and, and again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not here to talk about the, the, I have no medical opinion about this, but what I am here to say is that is a different topic than the topic Paul is addressing here. Um, there, are some, there are some anxiety issues that are best treated with medication. Some are best treated with counseling. Some are things that are of a spiritual nature that we need to deal with. I'm not claiming to understand what is going on in your life or the life of your loved one in this area. I do want you to understand, though, that when Paul commands us not to live an anxiety-filled life, he is not referring to what we would call clinical anxiety attacks or things of that nature. He's talking about what we would probably better call um, fearful worry. That the, the, the way it is, this Greek word is most often translated is worry or incessant worry, unceasing worry. And, and literally, if you read older um, English literature, you'll find that the word worry is used very different there than it is in our society today. It talks about a dog worrying a bone. 
It's this idea of incessant gnawing, can't stop, can't stop, can't get enough, ah, the tension, the, the tightness of the jaw, all of that kind of stuff. It's talking about not letting go. I don't know if I, I certainly don't recommend this, but if you ever see a big dog that is gnawing on a bone, I do not suggest you go and try to take it away from it. <laughs> there's, there's this sense that I, I, he can't let go, he won't let go. Um, and you know, we look and we're like, it's a bone. <laughs> It's not meat, it's a bone, but they gnaw on it. That's the picture here. Um, And just like Paul told us not to let our circumstances steal our joy, here he's telling us not to let our circumstances steal our peace either. And I know that many of us have read this passage before. Some of us can quote it verbatim. And when a preacher talks about it or or we uh, read about it in a book by an author, or even just in our own Bible reading, we come across Philippians 4 and we read it, um, it sounds so simple. Hey, stop being anxious. (laughs) But if you've tried to do it, you find that it's not easy. Some things are simple and not easy. Um, And by the way, um, Paul, who, who penned this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He knew this firsthand. He sat in a prison cell, chained up to soldiers on death row as he penned this letter. And the the original audience, the Philippian church, were under extreme persecution in the first century under Nero's government. And so um, they were facing, he, he addresses this elsewhere, they were facing extreme poverty and extreme persecution. So neither the writer of this letter nor the original recipients of this letter saw it as uh, some easy thing to just go, oh, come on, get over it. It's a serious thing to be under stress. And yet... Paul seems to have, and he goes on about this later in chapter four, he seems to have found a way to be content even in those extreme circumstances. So how did Paul do it? How did he expect the Philippian Christians to do it? And perhaps for us most importantly, how can we do it? Living 2,000 years later in the fastest paced, most stress-filled society the world has ever seen. One thing I love about the Bible is it is intensely practical. I've always uh, kind of scratched my head when I'm talking with someone about the Bible and they're like, yeah, it just never makes any sense to me and I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with all of this stuff and, and, and I don't know what to think of that because when I read the scripture, I'm like, wow, God is not just like throwing a bunch of rules, ideas, and philosophies at us and telling us to figure it out, but he's actually giving us steps to take so that we can make these things practical in our lives. And I don't know if there's a passage in scripture that's a better example of that than this. Because this command to not be anxious uh, is anything but a pipe dream. This is not a pie in the sky idea. Unless you keep um, reading and discover that Paul doesn't just tell us what to do, he tells us exactly how to do it, you're going to be frustrated. But as we continue to look, he unpacks it first. First, let me say this, he is not suggesting that you live a stress-free life. It's really important to hear that. 
Because the thing that we feel like is I am a victim of stress. Stress comes from the outside. It weighs me down. It seems to overwhelm me. It's not a choice that I make. And I would agree with you. You do not choose whether your situation is going to be stressful or not. Life has stress. Everybody feels stress. Do not let the enemy of your soul make you feel guilty because you feel stressed out at times. The question is not whether you're going to experience stress. The question is, how do you handle that stress? Is there a way to handle that stress? What a great question. If only we had some example to look to, some I don't know, person who was fully human and experienced stress and yet never sinned. Hmm. Who could that be? Well, let's look in the book of Luke and see if we can find something like that. <laughs> just just by chance. Maybe there's something in Luke. So go to Luke chapter 22. And we're just going to drop right in in the middle of a story in arguably one of the most stressful situations the world has ever seen. We, we get there in Luke chapter 22. It takes place in a beautiful garden, but the circumstances in the garden are not so beautiful. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's feeling the stress of what is upon him. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. When you take the four gospels and put them together and watch this story in the Garden of Gethsemane unfold, you see that Jesus is not only sweating drops of blood and not only is he crying out to the Father, but that the stress in his life, the physical um, stress that he is under causes him to fall down multiple times. That Jesus in all of his humanity is in a situation of stress that is overwhelming emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every other way. And he tells his friends, I need you to pray. I really need you to pray. Please pray. And he goes further in and he keeps falling down and he keeps falling down. And it says here that he sweat great drops of blood. Now, I don't know, you know how often you've heard of this happening. This happens to people. It's extremely rare. When the, when the blood pressure raises to the point, the stress is so great, and the blood pressure raises to a point that the capillaries begin to burst next to the sweat glands. And then you find that the, the blood and the sweat mix, and a person begins to sweat blood. And there are many, many examples of this on record. It happens. It's not even just something that used to happen back in the day. It has still happened. But, but you don't hear about people who live through it. It's such an extreme high blood pressure ordeal that it tends to shut down your system. 
That's what Jesus is doing. He's dealing with that kind of stress. And when his stress level was that high, what did he do? He prayed. Just like Paul told us to do in Philippians. Get back to Philippians now. And, and let's look at this again. Because Paul tells us what to do when we find ourselves in that situation. Philippians chapter 4. And look again at verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In fact, Jesus didn't just pray in this situation. He supplicated. Now, supplication is not a word that we use every day, so if it's not familiar to you, let me define it a little further. He, he mentions prayer and supplication, and, and, and to give you a sort of word picture, picture when um, the disciples say to Jesus, teach us to pray, and he teaches them the Lord's model prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and he, he sort of shows them this general way to pray. That would be the, the definition of the word that he's using here, prayer, it's sort of a general talk to God about it. That's what he's saying. Supplication is what Jesus did in the garden when he cries out, not once, not twice, not three times, please, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's crying out, according to Luke. There is, a, there is an intensity in this kind of prayer. There is a desperation in this kind of prayer. He is, he is crying out to God, begging God for relief. That's what's going on. So what did Jesus do when he was in the garden under this level of stress? He prayed and he supplicated. And Paul doesn't just tell us not to give in to anxious worry. This is far more practical than that. He tells us what to do instead. Prayer and supplication. There is something I can do. In those moments when you feel like I'm being overwhelmed, this is beyond my control, there's nothing I can do. God says, draw near to me, right? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says in 1 Peter, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. So it is oftentimes the hardest thing to do when I'm in the middle of a situation and everything is going crazy around me and the chaos is overwhelming and God says, just stop, just stop and talk to me about it. I will meet you there. Prayer and supplication. So Jesus lived under a lot of stress. But he did not allow his stress to control him. That's such an important point. So we're commanded to pray under times of great stress. We're commanded to supplicate, cry out to God in desperation under times of great stress. And there's one more thing we're told in this verse to do. And frankly, this one seems out of place, like it doesn't make any sense, like it doesn't fit. He says, with prayer and supplication, with what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. In the worst moments, when, when everything is overwhelming, when you cannot see light at the end of the tunnel, you're supposed to go, oh, God, thanks. What? It just seems so out of place. It, it makes what was a nice practical teaching become like ridiculous at first glance. Prayer and supplication, yeah, I get that. Thanksgiving, we're told to give thanks. Even in our most stressful moments, even in our most stressful seasons, to give thanks. And we're going to talk about that more later because it's Thanksgiving season. 
And I have a feeling there's going to be more sermons. So we'll talk about that a little more in detail later. But for now, let me just say that fearful anxiety and genuine thanksgiving cannot coexist in the same heart. Let me say it again because I don't know if you believe it. Fearful anxiety and genuine thanksgiving cannot coexist at the same place at the same time. It's impossible to be controlled by anxiety when you're being controlled by the Spirit of God. It is impossible to be controlled by anxiety when you are focused on giving thanks. It's called living beyond your circumstances. Or as we said last week, not living under your circumstances. So let me ask you a question. Even in your worst moments, even in your worst seasons, do you have anything to be thankful for? You don't even have to stop and think about it, right? I mean, oh my goodness. When, it, when someone puts it to you that way, Oh, of course I have so much to be thankful for. You know, every breath that you take is a gift from God. Every person who you love is a gift from God. Every, every meal that is provided is a gift of, from God. And on and on and on and on it goes. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount goes into great detail and says, hey, stop worrying about even the most important things like food and clothing and all that kind of stuff because you know what? God provides for the flowers. He provides for the birds. Don't you think he's going to provide for you? There's so much to be thankful for, but it takes diligent, willful effort to actually give thanks when things are going hard. And by the way, this is not a positive thinking game. He says, pray, supplicate, give thanks. You don't give thanks instead of being concerned. You don't give thanks as if there's nothing wrong. You pray about what's going on. You fall on your face before God and you cry out and you shed tears and you, you ball up your fist and you go, oh God, help me. Thank you, Lord. And you begin to turn your mind toward thanksgiving. This is incredibly practical. See what this practical training does for us, it gets our eyes off of our problems and onto God, who is our source of supply. Now, now psychologists have studied uh, anxiety and worry for a long time. And there are many, many studies that are out there, but it seems to be consistent as they study the sources of anxiety and fearful worry. Now, what they find, and, and this is statistics of a study I read recently, that 40% of what we worry about on average is never going to happen, right? It's the, what I call the what-if syndrome, you know? What if I get sick? What if I lose my job? What if she doesn't like me anymore? What if, what if, what if? And we live in this what if stuff and we literally are miserable in this moment because of something we're afraid could happen in a future moment, which by the way, as it turns out, doesn't happen. 40% of the time. 30% of the things we worry about, this is so funny, have already happened. <laughs> It's like, okay, I mean, I don't mean to be insulting. I'm talking about us, not you, but um, how stupid are we? 
right? That's 70%. For those of you math whizzes who got your calculator out, that 40% and 30%, that's 70% of the stuff we worry about is either never gonna happen or it's already happened. 22% of the things we worry about are trivial events. And I, started, I saw that stat and I started thinking, that's dumb, like who worries about trivial events? And then I pictured myself in the ninth inning when the Dodgers were in the playoffs. <laughs> There comes a point for me, if my team is playing and it's a big game, there, there comes a point for me, Christy sees it, then she knows I'm going upstairs now. There, there's a point for me in which, which I have to like put the, the feet down on the recliner and I have to stand up and watch the TV. I, I, so I'm not going to peacefully watch this. And, and, and most of you are like, yeah, that's trivial, and I, to which I say, Whatever. <laughs> and I bet you got some trivial stuff you worry about too. How many of you have cried at a fictional movie wondering what's gonna happen? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to spread the wealth. <laughs> so now we're at 92%. 4% of the things we worry about, we cannot impact in any way. I'm worried about it, but there's nothing I can do. But I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried. It's, it's, I'm gnawing the bone. It's, it's stealing my peace. That gets us to 96%. 4% of the things that people worry about, they're in a position to do something about. And then you have the option to get up and do something about it. That's a lot of useless worrying, my friends. That's a lot of us being robbed of the vibrancy of our lives, being crippled in our, in our desire to live out the purpose God has for us. So instead of that, why not pray? Why not supplicate? Why not build this disciplined habit into our lives? Then I'm gonna call out to God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fall on my face and weep before him if necessary. I'm gonna express all the emotion of that and beg him to help me. And I'm going to focus on thanksgiving. And then verse seven, and I'm gonna do this quick, but it's so important. As we follow these steps, he says in verse seven, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. There's this peace, he says, which is beyond comprehension. This peace that you cannot understand. It's called the peace of God. And he says the peace of God, when we live in our stress this way, he says the peace of God will guard your hearts. And that word guard is a military word excuse me, and it, it means to place a garrison of soldiers around something for protection. God says, I will um, vehemently protect your heart and your mind. Seek me, pray, supplicate, give thanks, change your focus, and I will guard your heart. I will guard your mind. I love he says your hearts and your minds. And in scripture we have, the, you know, we try to make distinctions between what does he mean by the heart, what does he mean by the mind, and there's other places that says heart, mind, soul, and strength. He, when he does this, he's talking about sort of um, with your whole being. And when he talks about the heart and the mind, he's talking about the inner person. 
He's saying God's gonna guard you on the inside the way a garrison of soldiers guards someone on the outside. He's gonna guard you emotionally. He's gonna guard you spiritually. He's gonna guard your thoughts and your heart and your desires. And you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. The peace of God, Jesus calls it my peace. It's his peace. And what does it say to us in, in Philippians? It says, and the peace of God, will, which um, surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. And here's our phrase again from last week, in Christ Jesus. In Christ It's his peace. It only comes in Christ. It's different than the fleeting peace that we think we can get from the world. The presence of the Holy Spirit brings this peace. So there you have it. A very practical alternative to a life of fearful worry. Not freedom from stress, but a way to deal with stress. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Peace. And so let's just ask ourselves as we wrap up, am I living in that peace? Do I have that kind of peace? And if you're a follower of Christ and you don't find yourself as a general rule experiencing that kind of peace and your circumstances tend to overwhelm you, I just want you to see God says it's here for you. Remember what he said, we saw this last week, the Lord is near. The Lord is near, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. If you don't have that peace, listen, he tells you what to do. Pray, supplicate, give thanks. Get your hearts and mind focused away from just the problem that you've got to solve, which you have to deal with, but it doesn't have to be the focus of your life. Lift your eyes, see the face of Jesus. Give thanks to God. Change your focus and you can have that peace. But a reminder to all of us that this peace, he says, is only available in Christ. This is not the peace the world gives. Jesus says, you need to be in a personal relationship with me to experience this peace. So you could, you could pray all you want. It's just words if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. You, you can desire the fruit of the Spirit all that you want, but it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit only lives in the hearts of those who have a personal relationship with Jesus. And, and, and you don't get this kind of peace by just dabbling in religion or believing some of the claims of the Bible or coming to church from time to time or any of those kind of things. This kind of peace comes by submitting your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which is something every one of us can do at any time. And so I implore you, if you find yourself going, man, I don't know anything about peace like that. I wouldn't even know how to pray. I feel like my prayers bounce up the ceilings because I don't really know this Jesus. You can know him today. It's just a matter of saying, yes, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a savior. I cannot save myself. I know that my sin separates me from you. So, oh God, won't you come into my life? I submit my will to yours. I give my life to you and accept your grace. Oh God, give me new life. And the scripture says that he will come into your heart, that very same Holy Spirit will give you love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there can be no law. Let's stand together and pray. Father, as we leave this place, I ask you, on behalf of everyone within the sound of my voice, that you would so infiltrate our hearts that peace and joy would reign in our lives. Father, help us to trust you more. Help us to focus on you more. Give us your grace where we have been just sort of wandering in our own direction. Bring us back, Lord. Get our focus upon you. Help us to be people who are truly giving of thanks and transform our lives and then through us, touch the lives of others. We give you all praise, all glory in our sincerest thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.